Hello, everyone. Welcome to Collisions YYC Current and Critical. I'm your host, Tyler Chisholm. Thank you for joining me today for another good old-fashioned chat. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with Kinstead Wealth, where they give private investors access to the best asset class managers in the world. As a business owner who simply did not have the time nor the knowledge to manage my own financial assets, I was always on the hunt for a partner that would be able to give me access to something more than the stock market. Two years ago, I was introduced to Kinstead Wealth, and my eyes were open to an entirely new set of possibilities. Their pension endowment style approach to portfolio management allowed a portion of my portfolio to be allocated to non-traditional assets such as private equity, private agriculture, private real estate, and private infrastructure, amongst others. This allowed me to have access to non-traditional assets that have return expectations superior to public stocks while having lower volatility. With these assets added to my traditional portfolio, I had the opportunity to enhance my returns and lower my volatility overall. You may be asking yourself, what do you mean by non-traditional assets? In short, these are institutional quality assets that are not promoted to the retail market, but to the pension, endowment, foundations, and family offices due to the fact that their minimums are very high. By partnering with Kinset as an investor, I was able to gain access to these financial vehicles that are typically out of reach for most people. To learn more about how Kinset can help you and your family, please visit them today at www.kinstead.com. Kinstead Wealth is a very proud member of our community and donates 1% of their top-line revenue every year to the charitable sector. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to Mr. Mark Gasparetto. How are you, Mark? I'm very well. Tyler, how are Thanks you? Thanks so much for coming on the show. As many of my audience know, I'm a member of an executive group called Tech, and I had the opportunity and privilege, I would say, about a month ago to have Mark come and speak to our group. Um, Mark, you are the owner of uh, Gasparetto Group, and where you focus on leadership training and leadership solutions in relation to your experience in the military. And we're going to talk a little bit about leadership today, because you can't have any conversation without it coming in at, to, some, to some degree, if you're talking about business and world events. But more importantly, you spent some extra time with us at lunch unpacking and breaking down from your perspective, which we'll share in a minute of the, the, the lens you're using to look at it, the situation that's happening in Eastern Europe right now, more importantly, what's happening in Ukraine. So with that, I'll turn it over to you to give our audience just a little bit of background of kind of who you are and where you're coming from, and then the filter you're using as we uh, give our audience an opportunity to maybe look at what's happening in Ukraine and with Russia from maybe a slightly different perspective than we're getting solely from our news feeds. So with that, I'll turn it over to you. Okay, Tyler, and thank you again for inviting me. It was wonderful spending time with you in, in the group uh, in Calgary. My background, I'm a professional engineer uh, by education. Uh, and then I joined the Canadian Army uh, and became a combat engineer officer. And a combat engineer, which is a subset of, of military engineering, our role is to allow friendly forces to live, move, and fight on the battlefield and to deny the same to the enemy. So terrain uh, factors heavily into uh, what we do, both the understanding of terrain, but also how we can shape it to, to meet the, the objectives uh, that, uh, that our commander has asked us or asked of us. So from, from that perspective, um, trying to understand what's going on in the Ukraine now, um, there's, a, there's a very significant, uh, there's significant geographic elements that have impacted Russian history over many centuries uh, that I think um, play, plays a, a very important part in, in what's going on. The, the other the other things, uh, the other themes are more recent uh, in terms of the Soviet Union uh, breaking up Ukraine, getting its independence, 
uh, NATO eastward expansion. So the, the confluence of, of those uh, events in, in more recent history um, have, have accelerated uh, what's going on. And, and then I think the, the last set of, uh, of, of, connect, or of, of connected issues is President Putin himself uh, and this, this notion of Eurasianism, uh, which I've been recently uh, educated on and how that has influenced his his thinking not only on Russia's more long-term history but also uh, in in terms of its more recent history and not just president putin but um, other uh, other elements of his inner circle and and the elite within uh, russian policy making and military and security uh, forces Ooh, this is a, a complicated onion, as, as it always is, and I think it's easy to want to simplify or go, well, this is a madman, or this is happening because of this, but I, what I really appreciated when you shared your perspective with our room, and so starting maybe even the the history, uh, you know, you made the comment, which stuck with me, you know, Catherine the Great, to protect my borders, I must expand them, and that resonated with me and really understanding how long or the kind of the, the Russian challenges, the challenge that Russia has had as a state to just protect itself over the last 2000. So maybe let's start with just like setting the foundation of like, let's talk about what's got us here. And then maybe we can fast forward. And I think we've got lots of topics, even if we just start at the end of world war two and kind of carry into today of the, the rest of some of those feel like they fit into that last 75, 80 year cycle a little bit more. Right. If you go back, um, you know, almost uh, a thousand years, uh, there was the Principality of Muscovy, uh, and then there was also uh, the Kievan Rus, which was uh, a collection of, of, of tribes centered you know, largely around Moscow. So if you draw uh, a circle around Moscow, I don't know, four or 500 kilometers uh, in, in, uh, in, in radius, that's what that initial uh, principality looked like. And... And as I go through this, it'll it'll be much easier if 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 your listeners are are looking at a map of of Russia. But that area is largely flat. Although it's forested, it's largely flat. Yes, there are some rivers, but there's no big water. And that links to your uh, you bringing up the quote from Catherine the Great to to vend my borders, I must expand them. So over Russian history, from you know from about the 1200s to present day, there's been a series of invasions. Um, coming from different parts of the world. And that's because the Russian Empire wasn't necessarily anchored on hard terrain features, either mountains or, or big water. So the Mongols invaded in the 1200s, and they came out of the east uh, down through the steppes, you know, flat, desert-like, um, south of the Ural Mountains. And the Ural Mountains is what separates Russia into two, European Russia and um, Asiatic Russia. So that's the Mongol invasion. Uh, the Ottoman Turks uh, invaded uh, in the late 1500s, and they would have come up through the Caucasus. Uh, and those are uh, a, a set of mountains uh, where present-day Georgia, um, Armenia, Azerbaijan are, are located. The Poles invaded um, in the early 1600s, and they, you know, Poland. Um, uh, abuts onto what is now Lithuania and Belarus and Ukraine. And so there, that's the great Northern European plain. Uh, the Swedes invaded, that was more a maritime uh, affair uh, in the Baltic Sea, uh, up around you know St. Petersburg uh, in that area. 
probably more familiar for, for many people, uh, Napoleon invaded in, in 1812. And he came, you can essentially drive a large army from the western coast of France all the way into the Russian heartland through that great northern plain. And you don't have to cross um, any big water uh, and, and no mountain ranges. And when, when, Ru when Russia was invaded in the Second World War uh, by the Nazis, uh, they came in through that same axis of advance. And so all of those invasions uh, are they remain very present in the Russian psyche. Uh, I, I would suggest um, Canadians don't have a, a very long memory. Our sense of history uh, does not go back that far. Um, and, but in other places it does. So that is how geography and history have, have shaped uh, how Russia um, feels about its neighbors. And, and so if you look at the end of the second world war, where we're, where the well, Soviet Union at the time, um, they had the greatest amount of, of geography. And so they controlled Eastern Europe. And that was a buffer zone for them, or what some have called a crumple zone. Because if, if Russia were to be invaded again, they could attack that, that, or they could defend against that attacking force on someone else's terrain, someone else's country. And, and that's where the destruction would occur. You know, more recently, and I think this plays into President Putin's mindset, you know, the idea of strategic encirclement by NATO, but also uh, in particular the United States. And when you look at some of Western history or, or NATO and, and the U.S. and regime change uh, attempting that in Iraq, uh, Syria, Libya, uh, and, and even Serbia during during the Kosovo uh, crisis, um, that plays into Russian distrust of the West as well. Hmm. I appreciate it. I maybe want to just put a pin and and underpin this of the fact that our goal of this episode for me is to create as much perspective. Certainly not to draw any um, support or to to. Um, lift up what Russia has decided to do in, in Ukraine. But I do, I just feel his need to, uh, he's been clearly villainized by, by the global, uh, on the, on a global stage. But you know, the goal of this, and certainly my always is be curious and understand. And I'm just, I'm looking at a map right now for fun. And I said, how long does it take me to drive from Kiev to Moscow? It's only 11 hour drive, which as an Albertan, that's BC. That's pretty close when you think about the idea of a protectionist mindset of like, wow, it's happened over and over and over again in our history as a nation, something as Canadians we don't, we can't relate to. Uh, 11 hours away, that's pretty close to have the risk of, of, of a border being exposed. Like that's, it's, it's a straight shot. It's an 870 kilometer drive. I've, I just never done the math before to look at it on, a, on an actual map. It's, it's here to Vancouver. So the risk of your enemies being in Vancouver and, you know, and we have a large mountain range in between not having that. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Was that the height of terms of like from a protectionist? I, the crumple zone makes so much no, so so much sense. Um, feels like it's a Volvo commercial. We've got that crumple zone to keep you safe when you hit something. Was the end of World War II? Was that the height of that level of perceived geographic security that that Russia would have had over the years? When you when you look back, uh, yes. I mean, they controlled right into half of Germany. They controlled. Mm -hmm. um, now, these were Eastern Bloc countries, but very much under yes. the thumb of, of the Soviet Union. Uh, so they controlled Germany, uh, then Czechoslovakia, uh, Hungary, 
Yugoslavia was always communist, but but non-aligned. Um, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, uh, Poland, they controlled all of the, the Baltic countries of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, uh, and then the Ukraine uh, as well. So that was that was the most significant um, buffer zone that that the Russian Empire um, has had, certainly uh, certainly in the West. Well, certainly, just again, I'm sitting here with my trusty Google Map in front of me. That's an 1807, uh, 1817 kilometer drive to get to Moscow from Berlin versus an 870 drive from Kiev. Just as an example of a of a reference point, it's a significant. Um, difference in terms of in terms of geography so world war ii happens uh, russia slices off its piece the cold war starts how much is that played into the just that antagonistic relationship between the u.s specifically u.s we'll just not to pick on them but we're u.s versus russia anything i've read about the cold war there was a constant level of antagonization antagonism between the two sometimes the states really leaning hard in on uh, some of the overwatch programs or even some of the giving into the nuclear era there's a lot of things that really contribute to uh, keeping that that russian story about we we can get invaded at any time it felt like we kept that firmly in place over the last you know since since world war ii through a lot of the actions on a global stage <laughs> i think russia felt reasonably secure during the cold war and because of that crumple zone because they had a, a large uh, almost total influence in that that near abroad, uh, and also they were a superpower, uh, one of two, and right. their their influence in the world was as a result of their um, political and military standing, and then it fell apart largely due to economics, uh, as as yeah, most empires, um, or their demise typically comes from internal uh, internal stagnation and and collapse. Hmm. Which literally was the collapse of the like 1991, kind of being that that dot in the timeline, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And and President Putin has said that was the greatest the the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991 was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, hmm. even greater than the Second World War. Uh, and so, hmm. interesting. When you listen to his speeches, and I have not listened to all of them. Um, he has been saying, he has been foreshadowing, he has been saying what he has wanted to do about the Ukrainian problem for a long time. Okay. As part of a bigger narrative of uh, regaining Russian uh, influence and standing in the world. It begs the question. It felt like there were so many ex, quote unquote experts, I say with air quotes, that were not believing that he was going to take action. But yet, I've been reading recently, there's a, to almost your comment of like, this playbook has been, he's, he hasn't been secretive about his intentions for quite a few years. And uh, even the last uh, administration in the US government, they kind of called Russia as, you know, what's going to happen here. Is also, is it just time ran out and they needed to act? Or is it also, has Russia come to a spot economically? Back to your point about they economically defaulted on on being themselves back in 1991. The Cold War was lost from an economic perspective, not necessarily a show of force. Does, you know, 
are they in a position now where they're feeling that they've got that strength or that that muster to be able to then to 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 lead an event like this, which we'll get into in a second of where it might end, because th that's the really the scary question I think we've all got beyond the fact that it's happening. Mm -hmm. I, I I don't know why. Um, okay, I'll start over. Uh, I don't know what drove the specific date. Now we did hear that. China asked them to wait till after the Olympics and, and certainly they wanted that, to <laughs> uh, press forward while the ground was still frozen to be able to take the weight of armored vehicles that are going off-road. That's a very tactical. Why this year? From what I've read, it, it could be that they saw the, the West as weak, um, particularly after the disastrous uh, withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan. Uh they saw that they had, uh, and then when I say they, you know, Russia perhaps saw that they had tremendous leverage over countries like Germany based on energy exports. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that likely went into uh, a lot of the thinking. From, from President Putin's perspective, some have said, you know, he looks sick. You know, no idea if, if his personal health is... Uh, it, speculation is, is, is easy because it has no responsibility to be accurate. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so no, so no idea. Um, okay. from a demographic perspective, uh, Russia is dying from the inside. They lose about a million people a year in terms of overall population. Oh, interesting. And when you, I know a lot of economists that purely look at demographics and the movement of a population and age of like, you can predict the next 70 years based exactly where your age ranges sit in a demographic, kind of that, that, that triangle, what it's supposed to look like is a very balanced wide base and narrow top. The Western world, we have some of our own challenges around even how that's getting inverted versus India or different places in the world. Interesting. Mm -hmm. and, and some of that has to do with, hmm. um, well, they're drinking themselves to death. Uh, the medical system is not keeping up. And so it's an unhealthy place to live for many. And, and that's driving, uh, if I remember correctly, 3 million deaths a year and they're replacing 2 million of them. You don't have to do a lot of math to kind of run that through. Uh, tying that in a little bit to maybe the military operational side. And, and you and I had a chat earlier this week and you made the comment about Russia's inability, just thinking about their healthcare system, thinking about their inability to maintain a healthy population, quality of life. And I'm inferring and speculating a bit here, but also you made the comment earlier about their inability to coordinate effective air, ground, sea assault and to, to, to lead a proper military operation because necessarily equipment or manpower aside, systemically, systematically, they don't necessarily have an infrastructure that makes for an effective war machine. Uh, maybe I'm using that word too loosely. <laughs> I think there's two aspects to this. Um, one is the, the extreme top-down decision-making uh, politically that every authoritarian, uh, authoritarian um, regime uh, exhibits. So the incredible centralization of power in one man uh, who has been in power for 22 years, you know, on and off, um, but mm -hmm. he, um, on and off, but always, but always on. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, really it was, it was, uh, he changed his title um, for those four years based on the constitution. So the Russian state really is embodied in the man. And, and you see that with dictatorships. 
Okay. So, cause I've also read that m- most, uh, even some of the you know high ranking officers, maybe below divisional level had no idea that they were about to invade the country. They thought they were there on a training exercise. So that's great for operational security. Uh, not very good when you expect people to plan at a more detailed level, the closer they get to the battlefield. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So that's on the political side, on the military side, uh, it, it's mirrored and the Russian army, the Soviet army has always been top down. Unlike, uh, Western armies, at least philosophically, we believe in something called mission command. And that is where you're told what the why is. You're left to figure out the what, or you can co-create the what. Hmm. But you're left almost entirely on the how. So when I received orders as as a commander, uh, let's say I was in in, in Kandahar, uh, I commanded a squadron. So I worked for uh, a commanding officer. I commanded a a squadron and I had three troops of, of folks under me. Uh, at troops, about 40, 40 soldiers. Okay. I would be told the why I would have discussions and we'd co-create the what, what, you know, what is this going to look like? But I was left almost entirely to figure out the how for me. When I translated that down, I would tell my troops the what, although we would have a discussion about it, but I left the how to them. I'm not an expert in water purification and making of maps, of building of roads, of diffusing bombs and improvised explosive devices, combat diving, building a bridge. That's not my role. So the technical experts figure out the how. So um, I know we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here. In the Ukrainian army, was like that. The big difference is since 2015 with Operation Unifier, that's what Canada's called it. I don't know if the other countries who contributed called called it that, but that was the training mission of the Ukrainian army. And yes, there was technical training, but there was also a lot of leadership training where that mission command was, was being infused. And so that allows for an entrepreneurial spirit You push down authority to the lowest levels possible to those on the front line who can make snap decisions based on a highly dynamic environment. So you were seeing small teams of Ukrainian, probably infantry, with anti-armor weapons, sneaking up on Russian convoys and destroying modern, reasonably modern tanks with these javelins or or NLAW um, anti-tank weapons. But it's not just a technical game. It's because they have been empowered to act at the lowest level and go out and be entrepreneurial on the battlefield. Interesting concept. But again, we, we did say we were going to not, we, we weren't going to not talk about leadership and how di- different leadership styles have, have different outcomes. Uh, so interesting when you think about, uh, so, cause 2014 has been, if you would think about, yes, this is what happened on February 24th, 2022, but there's been conflict in this region since 2014. So operation unifier was since 2015. Was that the date you put there? It was when Canadian Canadian government or the Canadian, we've been supporting them to kind of bolster and, and learn more skills. Yeah. Canada amongst the U S the UK, Sweden, yeah. um, and, and a few other countries. And, and that was in response to um, Russia uh, annexing the Crimea yes. uh, and also backing uh, separatists in the Donbass region in the, in the east of, of the country. 
Back to the hard fixed points, would Crimea cal- would count as, as a fixed point because there's obviously the Black Sea? Uh, you've got a major body of water. Would that fit that criteria of trying to build up some of those using geogra- geography as your, as, your, as your crumple zone, as your buffer? You want to you control the coastline, and, and the Crimea is so important because it, it also controls uh, entry into the Sea of um, Azov. So that's, you know, Mariupol right now, it's in that inland, um, that, that inland, uh, well, whether it's a lake or a sea, um, but, but it's all connected. So just like you want to, if, if you're an army, you want to take not the, if, if, okay, you're in Calgary, um, you don't want to defend the foothills. You want at a minimum to defend, uh, where the continental divide is, but ideally you want to defend, on the, the far side. side of the mountain range. Uh, right. if, if you need to tie into a sea or a lake, you need to control the coastline. Well, if you even look at, I'm not going to get into a commentary on um, <laughs> being landlocked as a province and some of the negative impact that's had on Alberta, just from a resource perspective of not being having access. If you take that and amplify well, if it. If only on we could ship uh, liquefied natural gas and oil to the Europeans who are in desperate need of it, um, because 5 yes. million barrels of oil a day are being withdrawn from the global supply chain by virtue of boycotting uh, Russian oil. If only we had yes. pipelines to seawater. <laughs> yes. So very, a very real, a very real example on East or, or West, if you think about it that way. So when you look at the potential of trying to understand, and again, you and I never will, but this is a, it's a bit of speculation and, and, and crystal balling here. When you look at the end game for this, is it simply to install a Russian you know, government in Ukraine and then call it a day? Or do we see potential, and again, pure speculation of a, and a more a continued push to get us to the point that we've got some geography geography back in our favor, knowing that you're still probably not to the extent you'd, you'd be without pushing into like kind of Cold War era kind of territory control. Mm-hmm. Uh, here I would go to what President Putin has stated uh, about the war aims. It's to uh, denazify the Ukraine. And, and there's a very cruel irony there considering President Zelensky is Jewish. Uh, so, so that means regime change from his perspective and in, in the installment of a pro-Russian uh, a pro-Russian government. Uh, and the other one is to demilitarize uh, the Ukraine. And so that is about the destruction of their armed forces such that uh, they're, they're not a threat. And so if you can install a puppet government, if you can destroy their military, and if you can ensure that that country never joins NATO, then you've turned it into a vassal state uh, and one that will remain um, beholden to uh, to Russia and, and, and Russian interests. So I believe, so, so what's the operationalization of, of those aims? Uh, I, I think ideally they would have taken the country, um, you know, w- without much of a fight. Uh, they never had the forces to occupy it, um, but if they could, if they could achieve those by decapitating the government uh, and destroying the bulk of of the army, um, then it would have been met. Uh, you know, now are, are they are the Russians going to try to control the coastline, therefore rendering the Ukraine uh, a landlocked country? Um, do they go as far as uh, going into Moldova? So a former um, 
you know, a, a former Soviet uh, republic. Uh, I, I think it had republic status. Uh, there's also Russian peacekeepers in a place called Trinistria, part of Moldova, but it's a breakaway. So do they, do they try, try to link up um, with that element? I don't think they're going to, well, I mean, you never know, but it would cause a war with NATO if they were to invade Romania, um, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, all countries that would be part of their ideal land grab to be able to anchor onto mountains or, or seas. But, you know, getting there um, is, well, quite literally World War III. Well, and I think not to draw unfair comparisons or maybe an uneducated comparison, but the Germany tackled a lot of wars on a lot of fronts with a lot of enemies, and that didn't work out. You know, that, that, that's a that's an incredibly wide-reaching conflict to describe, and like you said, NATO, it's you know, an, an assault on one is you know is assault on us all. That's a much bigger beast what you just described, and then we start getting into. Uh, chemical, nuclear, uh, you know, the, the use of weapons of mass destruction, which, which Russia does have clearly has in, in, the, in their arsenal. To what degree, I, I don't know. I've been doing a lot of uh, reading on DARPA recently and some of the stuff that the, the CIA and DARPA has been, and, and some of the insights, of course, around what, what they found out that Russia has been doing over the 80s, the 90s around chemical and bioweapons. Some very scary realities if this, if this escalates. Again, we're way out in conjecture and speculation now, but yeah. you, you can't, like you said, look back to look forward. There's a very reality and a willingness to potentially use some of these weapons. Uh, potentially, uh, you know, they were used in Syria, uh, mm -hmm. thermobaric weapons, uh, some chemical uh, weapons around chlorine gas, which is heavier than air. And therefore, if people are hanging out in bunkers or basements, that, that'll seep in. We're uh, literally in World War I territory when we start talking about things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you don't have to go that far back. Uh, those, yeah, some enough. of those weapon yeah. systems were used in Syria, uh, the bombing of Aleppo. Yeah. Um, hmm. I, I don't know that chemical weapons were used in Chechnya, but certainly uh, the complete rubbling of... Uh, of cities, Grozny included, with long-range uh, tube and, and missile artillery, uh, and, and and we're seeing that play out. So there, it, it's been said. I think Mark Twain: uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, there's a lot of rhyming going on, and in some cases, some very specific repeating of of Soviet and Russian tactics uh, in, in the Ukraine. And the unfortunate consequence of all these things is the massive loss of human life. Mm. The, the, you know, the willingness for the Russian, the Russians to, to perpetrate just what we perceive as they are, but just atrocities at a scale that I think as, as Western culture, we want to think doesn't happen or want to not, we've never seen it on our own soil. Mm -hmm. Never underestimate the Russian capacity to both endure and inflict pain, punishment and terror not only on outside uh, forces, but their own people. Hmm. Yeah, you don't have to read a lot of history to see some 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 very um, staunch examples of what of what you just said. Mm -hmm. Thinking about supporting the well, let me ask a couple of questions. Um, Putin versus Zelensky. I didn't realize he was Jewish. I didn't realize the denazify. I didn't know that that was this. I didn't understand that that was. I read it. And I was like, what does he mean by that? And I didn't realize that that was potentially a layer. I've had I've had conversations with a few friends recently, and they're like, you know what? 
it's just war is never worth it. They should have laid down their arms. Zelensky should have left. They should have just let the Russians have it and let international sanctions sort it out. I, I prickle at that a little bit because that's easy to say for someone who now doesn't have a new master. Your perspective on their decision to fight and Zelensky's clearly has stepped out as a, as a wartime leader and I believe is galvanizing to his people about the, the willingness to fight. I don't know, perspective on that as someone who's been on the ground and been in combat environments and laying down your arms and just let it, quote unquote, letting them have it. Mm -hmm. Edmund Burke said, people sleep peacefully in their beds at night because rough men and women are willing to engage in violence on their behalf. As a former army officer, my role as a, as, as, as a member of the profession of arms was to manage violence on behalf of the Canadian state. That's not on the brochure. Most people don't think of it that way, but I, I managed mm -hmm. violence, the application of force or the threat thereof to achieve political objectives. Okay. So do I think they should have laid down their arms? No, I do not. Um, there are, we live in a cruel and ugly world by and large. There are wolves, there are sheep and there are sheep dogs and the wolves will eat the sheep. If there aren't those sheep dogs there to protect them. Um, there are some things worth fighting for and some things are worth fighting to the death for. And I would suggest freedom, uh, and not living under, uh, complete Russian dominance is one of them. Uh, I, so I have very strong views on that. Uh, and, and as a former uh, soldier and officer, uh, you know, probably not un unexpected, uh, you know, how I'm coming out on it. This is a contest of wills. War is always a contest of wills. Yes. Economics play a massive part. Technology plays a massive part geography uh, as well. But ultimately this is, this is a contest of human will. And what we've seen from President Zelensky is, has been, is, or has been, is, and, and will continue to be, uh, even if he's killed, um, the most incredible display of courage under fire and leadership uh, that we've seen in, in a long time. Churchillian, uh, it, it's been described as. And... Hmm. We, we a, should not right and, and never underestimate the moral authority that he has and how that has played out in terms of stiffening the resistance and, and allowing Ukrainians to fight. Whether he's the right leader, uh, should he survive to rebuild the country? Uh, I don't know. But right now, he is absolutely um, mm -hmm. that leader. Should they have laid down their arms? Only, only Ukrainians can, only Ukrainians can judge that decision. Um, but certainly, uh, I think it's been heroic. From the outside, you know, talking about about leadership and when the chips are really down. And to your point, what happens in the future? It certainly is the leader they seem to that is they need right now. When it comes to that defensive position of of just keeping the Russians either pushing them back or keeping them at bay or not allowing them to take more ground, you shared some numbers with me the other day when we were chatting. Kind of the ratio of how many you know attackers versus defenders, especially when you get into an urban environment. Maybe just does 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 Ukraine have? Do they have the army? Do they have the military? Do they have the militia? The, you know they. Clearly clearly have the willingness to fight. Do they have enough 
troops? Do they have enough sheer mass to be able to repel this Russian attack? And we'll get into maybe how they're being supplied and the role NATO is or maybe isn't playing behind the scenes. But from a sheer headcount perspective, I think of Russia as this massive bully that can just keep throwing people, which is what they've done in other conflicts. How does that play out in Ukraine from your perspective? As the defenders, an open country, if you're dug in, you usually need about three attackers to one defender to, to take that position. In okay. urban terrain, you need anywhere from six to eight. City of Kiev is over 800 square kilometers in its footprint. Okay. It, it's big. Uh, and there's a lot of significant water and, and marshes to the north. Uh, so, the, I mean, it's tricky terrain in terms of, uh, uh, of attacking. So providing uh, they can maintain um, supply lines into the city and providing they can maintain a, a water source because humans can survive about three days without water, three weeks without food um, before things get, you know, quite critical. Dire. Uh, so I don't know how much they've been able to stockpile uh, in terms of those resources. People that are fleeing the Ukraine, and I think it's up over 3 million now, they're not fighting age males. They are not allowed to leave the country. They've all been, um, I don't know if they've been made part of the military, but they're certainly, you know, as part of citizen defense um, leagues. And, and so I do think Ukraine has the manpower. Can they continue to, to get the types of weapons that they need? Um, so we know about the anti-tank weapons. We know about the Stinger, which are shoulder-launched uh, anti-aircraft uh, missiles, uh, very sophisticated. But they'll only take down a plane under a certain altitude, and and, and I don't I don't remember what that is. Uh, right. To hit planes at bombers, in particular at at, at higher altitudes, um, they would need a, a different type of anti-aircraft system, one that isn't shoulder-launched. Mm-hmm. And, and so how do, how do those systems um, flow into the Ukraine? And, and I don't know where they are in, in terms of the, the approval uh, process or, or, or the pipeline. Has Russia, have, has there been like that high level bombers? Has that been a tactic that's been used so far? Uh, yes. Now, whether they've released their missiles from within Russian airspace um, or, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, far enough over the Black Sea that it, it, it isn't part of the uh, you know, Ukrainian territory, um, I don't know. Okay. But even fighter jets uh, will, you know, if they're in a close air support role, they'll come down low to be able to uh, support troops on the ground. Um, but but other fighter jets, you know, will still be at 10, 20,000 feet, you know, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I'm really speaking outside of my level of expertise here. I, pr- I appreciate um, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But Russia still doesn't have air superiority. Uh, which, which has really uh, confused many experts or perplexed many experts, and, and so the Ukrainians, uh, from at least a report I read a couple of days ago, they've got fifty-five aircraft left, uh, and they're still flying. You know, maybe five to ten sorties a day, where, where the Russians are flying ten times that. That will make a huge difference, um, especially. You, know, you started to read today in the paper, Ukrainians are conducting very localized counterattacks to regain um, 
you know, enclaves or, or villages, or maybe I to cut Russian supply and actually, lines. And actually getting make, getting ground from what I read, yeah. like actually making ground. It, that requires air cover to, to do it well, unless, you know, you're doing it at night. And, and that's another mm-hmm. thing. Um, all the Russian movement has been at night. So their, their night vision gear is, is likely confined to the special forces and maybe a couple elite um, it's not distributed you know, openly throughout the and whole. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't get down to, to the, to the bulk of the forces. Interesting. So think coming back to that, just the supply chain, if we've got, if we've got the manpower, we clearly have the will to fight. We have a leader that's, that's rallying and continuing to put out that message of what needs to be done. And when it, it comes to NATO's role or uh, maybe to blanket in NATO, uh, these supply lines that are moving into the country, from NATO-backed countries around weapons. And I've read the article I read this morning. Here's what Canada's provided, the UK, the US, and kind of broke down different from Javelin to Singer, a lot of the words you're using. How does that play into this with obviously Russians, Russia's ability or Putin's ability to kind of call on that as clearly meddling from the West, where there's a lot of that going on, like you said about the territory and how all of those, those, those countries have been rolled back right up against their border. And now, yet the Western Western allies are in there supplying without being involved, but yet clearly being involved. I'm just curious where you see that maybe going. And obviously, it's critical for Ukraine to be able to maintain the fight, but it creates another, and I've read about potential uh, terrorist attacks that can happen in some of these countries to try to minimize these, these the supply of weapons. And it feels like that's a real, like it's a real tinderbox of escalation opportunity there from a global perspective versus just what's happening on the ground. Pre-invasion, President Putin talked about well, he put his nuclear forces on high alert, and then, you know, made some some comments around if you interfere in this, you will face you will face consequences yes, like you've never seen before. Or, or words big to that bravado, effect. Yeah. Uh, so, so far, that hasn't played out uh, as as the West has uh, has have continued to flow in arms, uh, largely through Poland, but but not not exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, just because that's closest to Lviv, and and, and that's got you know, a distribution system from there uh, I- internally to to the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how that's ultimately going to play out. I, I have read that the desire not to give the not to give the Ukrainians those those MIGs from Poland. Um, they they want to keep the arms flowing that are defensive in nature that allows the Ukraine to defend itself on its territories, but not uh, to lash out potentially and influence things on the other side of its borders, which uh, is likely a red line. Hmm. It's kind of like back in elementary school, whoever started the fight didn't matter. The person that won seemed to always get in more trouble than the person that lost. So uh, that's a very weird comparison. But if all of a sudden you start flying big fighters across into Russian airspace, and that very much could change the view of how everything gets looked at from a, from a, from a perspective of who's getting attacked and who's doing the attacking. That's interesting. I hadn't heard that. Hmm. Hmm. It makes sense. Cause you kind of want to cheer them on uh, thinking about these other, like uh, Poland, uh, 
with their military, how any thoughts on the, the those individual countries and their like obviously there's NATO, but they've got their own uh, armies and their own militaries. Are they ramping up as well for a potential? I'm assuming they're strengthening their ranks, or they've seen this coming for a while. Again, we live in Canada, we live in North America. We don't have these wars that have just plagued century after century and generation after generation. It feels like there's just such a mindset that we just can't understand. I can't understand as a guy sitting in Calgary. <laughs> so two parts, and I'll answer them in reverse. Uh, Canada has never been made to pay for its lack of preparedness because we've got three oceans and we've always lived next to a global superpower. Um, first, the UK as part of uh, the Commonwealth or one of their territories, and then the United States. And, and the transfer between the UK and the US occurred between the world wars. All right, so that's from the Canadian perspective. And, you know, we've got um, our prime minister, uh, and, and if I haven't said it already, uh, he's the most unserious prime minister in our history, uh, who won't even commit to 2% of defense spending as a part of GDP, um, despite what's going on in the world right now. Okay, so that's Canada. Uh, happy to um, to double tap on that uh, with another that, question. That feels, like a, that feels like we might have a part two podcast just to talk about what's going on there. <laughs> in terms of Poland... Their memory, you know, they remember being partitioned by the Nazis and and the Soviets. Um, so Stalin and Hitler and and the you know incredibly uh, terrible things that occurred uh, there. And then when the war, uh, when Nazi Germany invaded, and then the Soviet Union came back through, and then living uh, under communist rule for for all those years during the Cold War, um, they take their defense very seriously. Um, they have spent over 2% of GDP, I think about 2.5. And if I read, if I read it correctly today, they have just committed to uh, increasing that to 3%. So they, they have significant forces um, in Germany. Um, they have more German made, sorry, um, they have more German made tanks than, uh, than Germany does. As an example, they have, okay. um, they have quite a few F-16 squadrons. So they take it very seriously. Uh, NATO, from what I understand, uh, has committed to putting in a multinational battle group in each of those um, in each of those countries that border onto on their eastern flank, that either border onto okay. Russia, Belarus, um, or you know, or Ukraine, um, Moldova, etc. Okay. So the strengthening of the eastern flank, I, I think, since uh, the war started. The number of troops in NATO that are under command of, of SACUR or the Supreme Allied Commander um, Europe um, have uh, have gone from 4,000 to 40,000. Okay. So there's been a very uh, uh, deliberate move to shore up, put, put, put bodies in bodies and equipment in the right places, uh, if, if need be. And there was some internal, and, and I don't fully understand it, but there were some internal uh, regulations around where troops could be based. And, and so for the longest time, NATO elements were in Germany, but to forward deploy them permanently, there was some sort of issue with it. You know, I think, you know, that bureaucracy is now out the window um, and, and you're okay. going to see battle groups in each one of these countries. Like what we've had for the, the previous few years in the Baltics. And, and so Canada has led, um, the 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 battle group in Latvia for um, I don't know how long but but at least uh, four or five years. Okay, 
As a, I know you're currently retired uh, from the Canadian military. Uh, is there amongst your peers, and again, just is is there a, is there a willingness, or is there an appetite, or is there a frustration of like, how do we get in this fight? How do we how do we support? How do we play that role? And I appreciate your filter is coming from someone who's been there representing our country in, in these in these uh, places, so the rest of us don't have to. Thinking about it from a military perspective, uh, just curious as as someone who's been there and and, and gone to do that work. What's that feeling when you look at what's happening here in Ukraine? I think those that are still serving, uh, there's likely a sense of excitement uh, and trepidation. It, it, it's not one emotion. You join the military for a reason. Um, if you join thinking, not liking fighting or thinking you're not going to fight, well, then I think you join for the wrong reasons. Okay. Uh, you know, we need warriors. Um, we don't need peacekeepers. Uh, now, sometimes a warrior needs to keep the peace. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. But, it, but, it, but it's a, there's a distinction there. I don't know if this will boost um, recruiting. Certainly, the best times we had from a cr- recruitment perspective were when we were fighting in Kandahar. And when that, when that combat mission stopped, it, it dried up. And um, we started losing typically young men who joined a fight. So I, I can't speak to that now. And there's also been a lot of bad, you know, recent bad press about the Canadian forces. And, and, and for most of the cases, rightfully so based on some, mm-hmm. some very toxic uh, cultural issues, especially around sexual. Well, we've been assault. talking about examples of good leadership. There's, ex- there's lots of examples of bad yeah, leadership yeah. that exists, which again, that's another podcast. Yeah. For yeah. Yes, there is. So, so what do, what do people feel? Um, as a soldier, when you get sent on a mission, doesn't matter how dangerous dangerous it is. Uh, from my own perspective, and 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 you know, certainly from from other warriors, is okay. Like it's business, and and we're off to do our job. Something we're trained trained well to do, perhaps not resourced as well to do uh, in the Canadian context. Okay. Uh, and, and people that have retired, so you see some news uh, around people going over to join the Ukrainian Foreign Legion. Mm. Uh, I don't know anyone personally who has done that, but certainly okay. uh, there are several hundred Canadians uh, that have. Interesting. I thought about it for and a I'm assuming, second. Is that, is that happening from U.S.? Is, like, is, is that happening on a, like, I don't see a lot of the, in the news, and again, just even getting preparing to chat with you today, I was doing some reading, and I didn't see a lot of headlines that called that out or, or brought that to the forefront, and just in my reading, which maybe I just didn't look at the right article. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen anything recently, um, but, but certainly there were, there were stories about it. Uh, you know, even one, there, there are enough Canadians there to have their own battalion. I don't know who's leading okay. it. Uh, I, I don't know anyone there. But I've read anywhere from twenty to thirty thousand foreign volunteers. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay, going to the Ukraine to to join these various legions. It's a real. That's a, yeah. No, that's a that's a real number. It's like back to your six to eight to one ratio. That's that 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 creates a uh, a knockdown effect or knock along effect of, of of what you know for every one to six to eight. That's that's really. I've never heard that. It's really interesting. Makes makes a lot of sense to dislodge someone from an entrenched position, especially when you get into an urban center. Eight hundred. I didn't realize how big it is. We have such a. Sh- I have such a shallow perspective of, of this uh, th- this area of eastern of Eastern Europe. You know, a few a little bit of travel here, a little bit of travel there, but there's so much history and just Ukraine. In 
general, I think what's the pop 46, 47 million people. Like it's a significant mass of people, population, uh, infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. It's somewhere around there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I never visited, uh, Kiev. Uh, I visited Lviv. Uh, and although okay. I didn't deploy to the Ukraine, I did deploy bomb technicians, uh, to, to go over as part of the overall Canadian training mission. Okay. And then All they right. trained Ukrainian engineers, um, to defuse unexploded ordnance, uh, booby traps, improvised explosive devices, the, the kind of explosive threats they were seeing in, in the Donbass, in, in the eastern region, which was, uh, if you were deployed there, it was dangerous. Right. And and as I know that the news is now focusing on this, obviously to a larger scale, but there's been skirmishes, like like you said, terrorism, all these things have been happening for years since 2014. Clearly, just picking a date in those regions right along the Russian border, this is just it's escalated to a bigger well as 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 what did Putin call it a special military operation, <laughs> but there's been significant amount of fighting and people dying up to this point. This is it didn't just start a month ago. I, in case you know, and it's easy to not know that if you weren't paying attention because it wasn't getting the same level of media it's getting now. Well, I think from President Putin's perspective, this started, um, you know, perhaps not in 1991, but certainly in 2004 when the yeah. the Orange Revolution uh, and the end result of that was a, a pro-Western leaning president uh, taking over. Uh, and then in 2008, uh, at, I believe it was the Bucharest summit for, for NATO, the then Secretary General saying one day the Ukraine could join and President Putin was yeah. there. Uh, and was uh, was apoplectic, um, and and then and then in 2014 there was another revolution that ousted a pro-Russian president uh, that really precipitated the the annexation of the of of Crimea and then uh, the backing of the separatists in the Donbass region. So even recent history, uh, like this isn't a yesterday thing. This has been brewing for. Um, you know, a, a decade plus. I think from the perspective of not saying about understanding and getting a, a deeper appreciation, uh, I've been reading about the Cuban Missile Crisis as of late in the U.S.'s and the and the Soviets putting nuclear weapons just off the shore of of of, of the U.S. The thought of me being in Putin's seat or in his government and hearing that one day Ukraine will be part, therefore we will have our enemies right up like 800 kilometers from our capital city. It's hard not to see some understanding of potentially their perspective, not to justify any of their behaviors, but I'm just trying to understand it, I guess is maybe a way to say it. Uh, curious question. And now we're going to go way out, way out in left field here. You mentioned about there was clearly two superpowers, the U S and Russia. We've got China in the mix now. We've got a whole other player that I would argue likes to play both sides of the coin sometimes, and depending. And any any factor that you see them playing in in, in this thing as it as it plays out. And I, I do fully respect from getting way outside the fringe of this conversation. <laughs> I can only parrot what I've read, um, although okay, some deep reading. China is running a hundred year marathon. You know, they really do think in, in very long-term um, time perspectives. Whether they uh, break sanctions or not, or h- how that, um, you know, plays out, you know, I don't know. Um, whether it imp- influences their thinking on the invasion of Taiwan 
Uh, that's a very different tactical problem. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, there's a lot of ocean between mainland China and, and Taiwan, and, and therefore um, the amphibious nature of, of, of whatever eventual invasion uh, would have to take in, into consideration. Um, from an energy perspective, um, from a financial perspective, you know, perhaps this is going to lead those two authoritarian regimes in particular to create their own system. Uh, and, and, and decouple to a, a certain extent from, from, from the global system. Um, the Russian foreign minister and even President Putin, I think, said as much. You know, we will withstand these sanctions and we will never rely on the West again. Again, words to that effect. Yeah. Uh, whether they can pull it off uh, or, or not, uh, I think, really does remain to be seen as, as these sanctions cripple... Uh, if, if not in the short term, certainly in the medium term, um, many, um, many Russian uh, economic capabilities. And, and this is where I, I would I would suggest to your reader, or to your listeners, to to listen to Peter Zahan. Okay, he goes into great detail uh, from a, a a really deep level of knowledge around uh, energy and agriculture, and and how all of that is connected. Um, and, and specifically how that is impacting uh, Russia. Uh, so any knowledge I have of, of that interconnectivity, um, well, it, it, it has largely come from listening to him and, and, and reading his stuff. Okay, I'll put that on the list. Well, if you look at the economic, we've talked a lot about the conflict side and the geography and the weaponry and the, just the, the sheer volume, people versus forces. And when you talk about the impact of and what drives countries to change behavior and look at the economic, Japan in World War II, you look at Germany, come, you know, lots of other motivations, but there was a deep uh, financial angst what brought that country together to that kind of kicked off, I think gave the Nazis a lot of foothold in terms of how they came to power in World War II. Those were financially bad times for the population and you think about that and tie into the world the role that you know we're going to have a coffee crisis in a year because we can't get enough fertilizer to grow more coffee beans like there's a whole other thing going on economically that isn't this direct human loss of life and how that will play out i'm way outside my realm but i think i think that might be my next podcast i need to get someone on to really talk about like let's park the conflict aside let's talk about the ramifications economically on a global stage and what that and what that could look like and what behavior we might be creating through kind of our actions now as the Western world or as the allied forces or NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, last crystal ball question, which I feel I've really pushed you into being my expert because you're on the call. So I'm now going to ask you everything that comes to mind. Well, <laughs> hopefully I've caveated that. things enough um, where... Yes. Uh, and for my audience, everyone knows this is the art of a good old fashioned conversation. And sometimes you wade into things that you don't know that you might have to Google later. And that, that's okay. That's why it's called a, co- a conversation. Um, next three months, six months, any kind of predictions or any, you know, wild ass guesses of where you might see this thing unfolding? Uh, Is it wrapped up in six months or are we in for the long haul here? It would seem we're in for the long haul until some sort of negotiation that, uh, that's, that provides terms that are acceptable to both parties. Um, will it turn into a frozen conflict? like it has in South Ossetia, Transnistria, um, 
Uh, and then there's another there's another breakaway um, province within within Georgia that's controlled by Russian forces, uh, Azbakia, I think, if I've pronounced it correctly. Quite possibly. And you know the expression "in for a penny, in for a pound." Um, I don't know that President Putin gains anything from stopping what he's doing now. Um, so much punishment economically and financially through sanctions has been imposed. Uh, does he see how that plays out? You know, the, the talk of, of riots in the streets and, and the people deposing him. Um, very hard to, to imagine that, uh, you, you know, if anything, it would be, it would be a security forces. Uh, and, and we saw that in the, just prior to the fall of the Soviet Union, when the security apparatus detained Mikhail Gorbachev, um, you know, and that led to that led to a whole bunch of stuff, uh, you know, including Boris Yeltsin um, coming in. So, how does this play out in the month? I, I think Russia continues to to grind down the cities using artillery and, and missiles and, and bombs. Uh, perhaps they try to reinforce, um, but not sure where those troops are coming from, um, unless they're conscripts. And, you know, there you're just feeding them into the fire, really. So that's my sense is it, this, this continues towards stalemate. Uh, unless there's a game changer like the use of of a of a biological or or tactical nuclear um, weapon, so so I, I just don't think we really know, and arms are going to continue to flow into the Ukraine to help them defend themselves, uh, and, and and that's just going to produce um, you know more of the stalemate. Uh, unfortunate because the underpinning everything we're talking about is this, this massive loss of human life and, and the destruction of a, of, of a country and its ecosystem and its infrastructure and all of the, the negative sides of war. I don't know if there's many positive sides, but yet we continue to fight and we continue to be dis misaligned on how we see our ideal outcomes. And, and often we end up using force to try to resolve that. But Mark, I really appreciate one, you taking your time, your willingness to uh, share what you, what you know and what you understand, but also to wade into territory that I maybe asked you questions as my de, de facto expert today, which I really appreciate. Um, Gasparetto Group, Leadership Solutions. Uh, I've enjoyed very much getting to know you in a speaking environment and also on the call today. If people want to learn more or get in touch with you, either from your business or just personally, what's the best way for people to get in contact? Uh, check us out online, gasparetto.co. G-A-S-P-A-R-O-T-T-O dot co. Uh, I'm active on LinkedIn uh, personally. Um, the group is active on a whole bunch of other social media platforms um, that uh, mm -hmm. if you had asked me three years ago, Tyler, if I'd own a TikTok account, I would have said you're crazy, but yet here I am. <laughs> I appreciate that. You're not, you're not the only business owner that may have answered that question the same way. Yeah. Well, I, I probably would have used uh, some expletives, um, but 
<laughs> but since I'm being recorded. Oh, by the way, we kept it very PG today, by the way. I, uh, again, from uh, with our audience, if they're still listening, they're in. So you know, from some past jokes, there was an exchange of, you know, what kind of profanity kind of level do we have here? But I think we kept it fairly, uh, I think we, we kept it PG-13 today, Mark. So well done. I, I compliment us both. <laughs> okay. Uh, it, yeah, it's been something I've been working on. Well, well done, sir. You're gonna get you're gonna get checkbox on, on on today's episode. We have it. It's it's audio. It's recorded. We've spoken for an hour and one minute and thirty two seconds with no profanity. So I, I I'm proud of us both. <laughs> right on, Mark. Have yourself a great day, and uh, I look forward to chatting with you again. I really appreciate your time and your perspective today. Thank you, sir. Tyler, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.